0: Jordan, how's it going? What's up? It's it's going well. How are you? I'm pretty good. Just got back from a little uh, little holiday, traveling around. Saw some family, hung around uh, Ottawa, Ontario for a couple of days. It was nice. My son got to play really? with his cousin a lot. We had uh, a good time. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, it was nice. How's your holiday,
1: Mister Scrooge? It's good.
0: <laughs> I mean,
1: the best holidays are always the ones where you don't do anything. In my yeah. opinion. No, no yeah. traveling. You don't have to deal with the craziness of traveling during the holiday season. Just got to stay here. Uh, saw some of my fiance's family. Spent some time with them. Just took it easy, which is really great.
0: That is very nice. Yeah, I got to I got to relax a little bit as well. And it was kind of like, wasn't used to it. I'm used to running around for the whole season with like a chicken with its head cut off or what have you. <laughs> and it was kind of nice. I got to take a couple of days rest a little bit. I watched a bunch of sports. It was good. I could get used to that, actually. It was pretty nice. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's the dream. Doing nothing, just watching sports, hanging out. Yeah.
0: That's I watched Lethal Weapon. watch Lethal Weapon on Christmas. <laughs> okay. Because you, you think of Die Hard as the perennial 80s Christmas action movie, and I do love Die Hard. I did watch that on the 23rd, but Lethal Weapon is right up there as well as, the, as in terms of the 80s action Christmas movie. And that was very Mm -hmm. enjoyable. That was a great way to spend my evening. It's funny how, like in those movies, how you know there there are like these references to things that America does around the world, or things that the CIA does, that have these kernels of truth in them. Like Lethal Weapon is all about this, like this rogue faction of the CIA that takes over this like heroin import business, basically following the Vietnam War, and has all these powerful. People like importing uh, heroin into the streets of of Los Angeles, which is like not far away from like an actual real thing that happened with the CIA dealing drugs in like South Central Los Angeles. You know, these are the things that we know. This used to be like a conspiracy theory that you could joke around about, and now it's like, oh yeah, that that actually did happen. Um, but it's amazing too. It's 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 weird to me in terms of like analyzing like how this kind of stuff uh, comes to be, and the, you see that like. They mix in these elements of truth, but it's like, don't worry. But at the same, while the CIA was doing that, they were importing drugs into the United States. Yes, that is true. Although it wasn't like the CIA, it was like a rogue group of former CIA types, mm-hmm. wink mm-hmm. wink. But <laughs> don't worry, because you had Mel Gibson and Danny Glover putting a stop to it, bantering all the way. The good, the good LAPD cops, of course, were able to put a stop to all that. So it's funny how that works, right? It's like the first part about the CIA dealing drugs, that happened. The whole thing about the good LAPD cops stopping that from happening, that's the fiction. That's the that's the <laughs> movie part, you know? It's funny the good how LAPD kind of white- cops part. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. That's the whole thing. It kind of whitewashes these very uh, dark uh, parts of American uh, foreign policy and how the security uh, state operates. But it's a good flick, you know? I enjoyed it. Sure. You know, I will
1: say this is my first holiday season in Los Angeles. It doesn't feel like the holidays. Yeah. It just doesn't get cold. And I don't know if it's kind of where I live and where I spend my time, but it it's not even really decorated. Like, you know, downtown areas or little stores and you'll, you'll go around and you'll see holiday decorations. I don't know what it is. It just feels like another day, like a, a chilly day here. It's very weird. I just haven't felt the same willingly or not it's yeah. often forced upon me anyway, but I haven't seen or experienced that same holiday cheer and that holiday magic here.
0: So that's in good Southern for California. you.
1: Cause you see I that like kind of stuff and you go, ah, yeah. I got this
0: out of my face. Tearing Recoil- down Christmas my trees. My nose recoils. Yeah. yeah. Slapping <laughs> presents of little kids' hands and stuff. Wait, that's you're wait a do. minute. <laughs> what, okay. Have you seen the videos
1: of the people I don't know if it's like a parent or like a friend of the family dressing up as the Grinch.
0: Yes. Those are fantastic.
1: Two people's houses and yeah. the presents are the tree and the kids are just like screaming and it's melting. Okay.
0: As a parent, how do you feel about those? I mean, it's it's funny to watch the video. That's not something that I would do though, you know. You see, the kid is very upset. Okay. He's, there, he's there, like attacking the Grinch. He's like, This man, this Grinch is stealing my presence. Like, if you kids take this shit seriously, like, somebody could get hurt. It's America, too. You don't know who's packing. That Grinch <laughs> could have been gunned down. Le- and legally, that would be acceptable. Legally, that would be a stand your ground situation. Standing your ground against the Grinch. If this eight year old gunned down, if compromised the Grinch to a permanent end. You know, everyone would understand that, but that would be a senseless tragedy. That was just a harmless kind of prank, you know, or should have been.
1: That sounds like the premise to a Daily Wire movie, like the Grinch is woke. We're going to make an (laughs) unwoke Grinch. And it's the whole premise is he goes into Whoville and they're all armed to the teeth. And Cindy Lou just blows his fucking head
0: off. He doesn't even get a chance for a redemption arc. It's just, yeah. dead
1: and then she like blows the smoke out of the barrel of the gun uh, how's that for your war on Christmas
0: yeah like breaks the third wall I yeah. like that
1: unfortunately please J- hire little,
0: me the other little kid or little brother gets caught in the crossfire but that's just the price you pay for living in a free society yeah like that.
1: that's her right you know you <laughs> don't want her to be, be deprived of her rights to carry arms
0: exactly crime yeah. rates in Whoville are at an all time <laughs> low thanks to <laughs> Oh boy! Um, the other big like parenting thing about the holidays that I've never gotten involved with that also seems kind of weirdly sadistic is the whole elf on a shelf thing. You know, yeah, it's just kind Have of like
1: an opticon for
0: your kids, right? Yeah, I thought it was just a little toy that you moved around. Yeah, but it's like
1: the whole premise is like, oh, you're always being watched, oh, so yeah, you better yeah. be on your best behavior. It's like oh, a, a sure. panopticon yeah. toy.
0: Yeah, I I don't know. Some of these parents seem like they're getting a little too. Excited about this. I saw one that, like, they drew on their kid's face, like, with a marker, and then put the elf next to the bed with a little marker in its hand. And this poor kid is like, This elf literally just like drew on me when I was sleeping. Like, that would be kind of scary, you know? What are you (laughs) going to do the next time when you go to sleep? It was like, What's going to happen now? It's like the Blair Witch Project. Like, every single night, it's going to get worse. (laughs) The torment's going to get even worse. I feel like that's a weird thing. Like, Christmas supposed to be fun, you know? It's supposed to be fun. I understand the whole Santa good list and naughty list thing. Like, yeah, I get it. But like, Jesus. This is gonna traumatize these kids, a whole generation. The through line troublemaker here. elves are assaulting them at night. <laughs> I think
1: the through line in these is often just how can parents use their kids for content, which yeah. is so strange. Yeah, That's just is. so bizarre to me. And and I've talked about it before, I'm never having kids and I had surgery to make sure that never happens (laughs) i just i don't understand that that habit that some people uh, engage in just how do i torment my child so i can get likes and shares that's just really weird really really weird behavior
0: yeah, I mean, there's the whole thing of like, you know, kids not really being able to consent to having their images be put on the internet forever as well. Um, and people, put the, you know, yeah. weird, embarrassing, like baby pictures and stuff like that. You know, that cliche of like, you bring a date home and your parents are like, here's little Robbie's ba- baby pictures. My mom doesn't sound like that. I don't know why I would, why I would use that voice. But, <laughs> you know, that's a little cliche. But like now it's just like, it's just, it's out there for everyone if you ever want to see it. It's definitely something that I've been cognizant of. Uh, having kids, you know, I'm not I'm not above like you know posting a picture of, my, of me and my son or whatever. I I love him a lot and I, I like to, you know, uh, put him out there sometimes. But it's definitely something that I've been aware of. And like he wants to be out there more. He like wants to be on YouTube and stuff. And I have to be like, let's just like let's pump yeah. the brakes on that a little tiny bit. Like I know you really want that, um, but like let's just maybe hold off on that just a little bit longer. I've been making these fake gaming videos with him, so he kind of pretends that he's on YouTube, even though he's not. That's kind of the compromise we've been that we've been doing, but oh, that's cute. I'm kind of like, let's just maybe let's hold off on that <laughs> you know yeah, it's a little weird,
1: yeah, uh I mean i feel like this is just a continuation of your oh, it's for my kid, I just have to grind the battle pass out yeah exactly. it's really it's just your whole <laughs> stockpile of like Rob's epic headshots,
0: yes, yeah, pretty much, <laughs> um. You know, at this point with Fortnite, like I have no, like I just, it's just me that likes it. I mean, it's like, there's no way, there's no getting around that. He did quite like the, the Lego Fortnite though. He, he was quite into that, Okay, but I haven't, yeah, I'm just that. playing it myself, you know, let's be honest here.
1: You're right. Right. All right. Well, there's still time. He'll mature. He'll understand. Yeah. He'll grow wiser. Yeah. You know, you know, this was my, f- one of my favorite things from the college football season, And it happened this week. Did you pay attention to the Pop Tart Bowl (laughs) at all, Rob?
0: I I saw some of the highlights. I saw some of the highlights. It was really something else. I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. So, if
1: people are unfamiliar, the Pop Tart Bowl, which took place, one of the many, many branded college football bowl games. And the mascot, of course, was a giant Pop Tart. But the uh, an announcing when they were showing this mascot uh, either before the game or during the game, they said after the game, he will be devoured. <laughs> he will die and he will be his own last meal. And then after the game, as promised, he held up a sign. This this mascot up a sign and said, this is my dream or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's some sort of communication to the crowd and to the audience watching that he did consent to his, his, his public execution and they lowered him into this giant toaster. And then out the side came a, a oversized pop tart that looked similar to this mascot, but was edible. And then the, the players that who on the winning team, I believe it was Kansas state just started like ripping into this thing and, and eating him, it was really yeah. <laughs> bizarre. It looked just
0: like it a, was. a cannibalism ritual. Yeah, it was very ritualistic. Yeah, it was kind of disturbing. It was like fucking. Uh, uh, it was like midsummer, sort of oh. ritualistic, ritualistic yeah. sacrifice thing. I don't know. It was very strange, <laughs> and having it be done like in the context of like college football. I don't know. It was definitely a very like it was a very uniquely American moment. As someone, you know, we've talked a lot of this cultural similarities. Canada and the United States where we a lot we absorb a lot of American culture. That was one thing though watching that though I was like, I feel like you need to be American to understand really what's happening here. that's one thing I was like, I feel no I feel no real connection to this. this very strange yeah. situation that I'm seeing unfold here,
1: <laughs> yeah, you see these memes and posts a lot with just I don't know a bunch of Starbucks drinks, and it'll say the European mind can't comprehend this, and I think a lot of those are just kind of lazy like I'm, I'm I'm sure they can they can see gluttony and identify it and not care and move on with their day, but I do think this is something that yeah. I, even when I exp- I was explaining to a friend who is Canadian the other night that, about this, telling him about the videos, he was just flabbergasted. Like, oh, you have what? multiple what? Canadian friends. That's I have Look at least I'm- one more. Again.
0: Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah it's very culturally uh open open of you that's very cool yeah no it was it was very weird i i don't can't say i really understood it but yeah, you know it was uh it, it was something i'll g- i'll give you that yeah so well jordan it's the last podcast of the year it's december 30th uh right now we're heading into the new year how are you feeling about that
1: yeah i think fine i guess we're going into an election year <laughs> um you know this is going to be Four years of doing the show because we started during the primaries of 2020. That is crazy. So another cycle. That is actually insane
0: belt. to me. <laughs> actually, yeah, <laughs> it is.
1: Real. Well, uh, I, I think, I don't know. I'm In a political context, I'm uneasy. I don't know if this play that the Democrats uh, are engaging in of just hinging their electoral hopes on hoping everyone remembers how bad the Trump years were and they were bad. I don't know if people's memories are going to be uh, as reliable as pollsters and strategists might hope and think they are. So I'm, I'm uneasy about that and the outcome of that. Um, I I guess I just don't really know (laughs) what to expect. Every year seems just miserable (laughs) over the, especially over the past several, like things just continue to get worse. The people in power, continue to refuse to do anything about them and we are told time and time again well you just have to vote because it's the most important election of your life meanwhile
0: uh nothing really changes so
1: i don't know just taking it a day at a time i guess
0: yeah um in a way just as like a in my putting my journalist hat or whatever it is um i'm kind of I'm not going to say excited, but I'm kind of intrigued about how things are going to go. It's going to be definitely interesting covering uh, this the insanity of the next couple of months. Um, you know, I saw that tweet the other day where like, there are like word from like these kind of democratic strategists or consultants or people that are on the inside are basically saying like, eh, we think like people of color and these Arab communities are just going to ultimately just line up to vote for the Democrats just like they always do which is not a bet that I would be wanting to make probably if I was in that position. Um, So I don't know how that's going to go, you know, and you can, you can talk about, you know, the lesser of two evils thing. Um, You can point out like concrete differences between the two parties. I think just on two levels, like um, immigration one, that's one, that's one aspect of like the U S government and how it works that I've been uh, interested in following It it galvanized a lot of people during the Trump years. And like the way that immigrants were treated during the Trump years has has been held up as one of the primary differences between these two parties. But as we've talked about repeatedly on this show, a lot of the most horrific immigration policies that Trump kind of normalized with Stephen Miller, who I thought it was agreed was this like monstrous, kind of like fascistic kind of figure, uh, this racist person. Instituting this like really draconian immigration policy. As we've talked about, uh, uh, the Biden administration has kept most of these policies in place uh, and are now currently like negotiating to possibly make them even more draconian. Um, so you take a look at uh, police violence as well. Biden was elected on the wave of this, like the, one of the largest protest movements in modern American history, talking about po- systemic police violence and systemic racism um and police today in the United States are getting more money than they were previously and they're killing more people than they were previously than at any other point so you know it's like those those are just two examples um and the, to say nothing of of Biden's foreign policy like we're seeing unfolding in this absolute disaster in the Middle East um in in Palestine which even the most hawkish democrats are trying to distance themselves from this whole argument about them being the lesser of two evils, even if there are things that we could talk about or point out that there are, that are difference um, between these two parties, a lot of it it seems to be mostly about rhetoric than actual like action. I think when you take these things into, into account, though, this this argument about who's the lesser of two evils kind of does fall apart a little bit. Um, it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that there's not any any differences. I think there are, but in a lot of ways that that really matter to people, there are not. So. I don't think this strategy of just doubling down on all this stuff and just counting on uh scaring people into voting voting for the blue side uh, like they always do and counting on people to just show up and do that. I don't know. I think that's a pretty dangerous bet to be making right now. And um it's I've certainly been wrong about these things before so I don't want to make too many predictions about what's going to happen, but <laughs> certainly um if I was really part of this like party infrastructure, I would not be feeling too good about uh, the prospects of Of what's coming up so
1: yeah it'll be interesting though the the people who deploy that defense like oh you think you think these are the exactly the same well what about uh x y and z issue what about all of these things and it's like no one's disputing that like you're you're pointing out like there are differences but when we're talking about something like uh, the us's stance on gaza and, and israel on palestinians and their right to survive the right to live invoking things like oh well good luck fighting climate change when Trump wins or uh good luck getting an infrastructure bill passed with Trump it's like those aren't those aren't things we're talking about right now you're just you're trying to deflect and i see a lot of people trying to justify what the biden administration is doing it's like look it's just so complicated it, there's a hundred years of history here. There's a lot of gray areas. It's just so complicated. It's like, it's 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 not. It really isn't. It really is not complicated. And that we have a moment where the U.S. is yet again bypassing, or the government, or sorry, the Biden administration specifically, is bypassing Congress yet again to funnel more arms to Israel, despite all of their public posturing about, oh, we're trying to get them to stop killing civilians when you continue supplying them with weapons that do just that, all you're doing is engaging in rhetoric. And it's like you're saying, it's a battle of rhetoric. Sure, Trump is going to be out and proud saying, like, we'll just kill them all and his base will support him. The Biden administration is saying, well, we're, we're deeply concerned. We're troubled. We're looking into this. Meanwhile, the policy is essentially just we're, we're just going to kill them all or voluntarily displace them. Yeah. Which still is not a humane solution.
0: Yeah, interestingly enough, dude, the parliamentarian didn't have anything to say about this uh, his, his <laughs> arms transfer to Israel. Yeah, where's weirdly. she been? <laughs> weirdly, I don't know. I don't know how that works exactly. It seems like when you want to pass, like you know, an increase of uh, the minimum wage or like pass policies that actually help Americans, uh, like go live their lives, that's when it becomes a big problem. But when it comes to send out something deadly weapons to Israel in order to drop them on the uh, homes of uh, Palestinian children. Uh, then it's then it's actually the, the these institutions don't seem to have these kinds of constraints. That's always the thing with with this the, the way that people talk about this, right? Where just Biden's just powerless. He's powerless. He wants to do all this great stuff, but ah, oh, you know, uh, mansion and cinema and the parliamentarian, and there's just excuse after excuse or why they can't do these things. Um, but all of a sudden, you see that this is kind of like this whole these checks and balances are pretty much illusory, and it's it's just kind of leaning on these things in order to not uh, do them. Um, I think uh, one thing I did want to mention, though, because I saw in like Biden's like year-end wrap-up uh, kind of thing about all the accomplishments, um, and you talked about climate as kind of one one maybe key thing that you could point to where there's these big differences within the parties, and definitely in terms of like the things that they say that that's true. Um, but I did find it funny that Biden put out this like end-of-year accomplishment thing, and one of the bullet points was tackled the climate crisis. <laughs>
1: Tackled it. It's over.
0: Yeah, it's funny. We did it. We did it, Joe. Uh, I had to chuckle at that. And we, like we've talked about, there's there's stuff in that um, Inflation Reduction Act. That's there's some pretty decent things in there. Uh, bringing back these these green jobs to these deindustrialized areas, making uh, EV batteries and like solar panels or whatever. You know, it's not nothing. You know, uh, it's mm-hmm. not. But at the same time, it's like the idea that that's tackling the climate crisis. Like, well, check that off. Check that off the list. Like. Even if you can point to these things and say like, oh yeah, that's not so bad, um, materially, that's not actually impacting the climate crisis at all. Uh, you know, it's maybe it's it's making America a little bit more of a home to green energy production. Maybe it's going to improve the quality of life in some of these communities where people can get these jobs. Um, ultimately, what's going to go down? What's going to happen with carbon emissions though? Like, are they going down or not? Like, because at, at this point, no, they're not. And you just look at like some of the things, even the positive things that we can talk about in that. Um, Biden' agenda compared to like what China is doing right now, and the huge, like, unfathomable investments that they're making right now into renewable energy, uh, building this gigantic, historic infrastructure projects. Um, in addition to becoming the global leader in in uh, electric vehicles, um, I mean, it's just there's just no comparison at all. And who's doing more to actually meaningfully impact this crisis? So it's just funny that to see Biden like take the things that they have done which again is not nothing but frame that as being like okay we did it you know we did it and that's going to help that's going to be held up as this big difference between the two parties and i i don't think donald trump or whoever if he's if he's able to run if he's in jail or what's going to happen is going to be good on these issues but meaningfully in terms of like america's contribution to this crisis in terms of emissions in terms of like actually meaningfully making an impact into this like historic crisis that we're kind of heading towards. These are two very, very similar policies.
1: Right. The the attack from the right is always, well, China's the leading uh, producer uh, of emissions. And we why why should we do anything if China's not doing anything? Well, when Xi Jinping came here to talk about climate change with Gavin Newsom, uh, and I believe he also met with Biden about it, I think that was part of what they talked about, you also were upset about that. Yeah, and I I think the the obstacles that Republicans try to create through shifting rhetoric like that, through uh, impediments and misinformation and bullshit science and experts that they prop up uh, throughout the mainly right wing media ecosystem, but they also are in legacy outlets as well. It's just it's depressing. (laughs) It's it's a challenge that I don't think Democrats are fully equipped to tackle, or even willing to address. That they could get this through, despite having huge uh, opportunities and, and windfalls for the oil and gas sector in this, in these, a series of bills that Manchin did allow to pass, <laughs> given his his role in in blocking. Very generous oil. of him, yeah. yeah. But he did it with the condition that there was kickbacks and benefits for the oil and gas industry. Like you're not tackling it when you have, especially a Republican party, it's going to fight tooth and nail for these giant polluters and huge corporate industries that are making this problem worse. But People in your own party who are doing this, who are basically tying an anchor to your piece of legislation to make it worse, to hold it, hold it down. I just, I, they don't seem very willing to really address it head on, to call out this bullshit. They want to sell this as tackling the climate crisis, but God, there's so much more fucking work to do. And there's especially a lot of work to do in collaboration and coordination with countries like China, whether you like the leader or not, you have to because by your own admission, they do produce a lot of, uh, Uh, emissions a lot of that is because they produce all of our shit because we export or we we send all of our jobs there yeah so it's like you're you're fudging the numbers here
0: yeah exactly if they if they america started uh, uh went back to manufacturing all the like stuff that china makes which is then sold cheaply at places like walmart then not only would these products be more expensive but america's emissions would rise um but yeah i mean that's that's another thing and i think the whole meeting with xi jinping was um a another p- somewhat positive thing that kind of was in- somewhat encouraging given the ways that the biden administration has been i think really hostile towards china also in lockstep with the, what the republican party wants to do um and like you said like whether you what no matter what your feelings are on china the reality is that um, you know, they're now one of the top global economies, probably over the next uh 10, 15 years will become the top global economy. And uh in order to have any chance of mitigating the the danger that we're all in from this crisis, that's gonna require cooperation between the United States and and China. There's no other way around that. And increased hostility is only gonna make that less likely. And I'm talking about mitigating now because it seems like the the worst consequences of climate change, we've all almost agreed now are. Basically impossible to prevent, so we're really just talking about mitigating the kind of damage that's that's going to be done um and the only way that that's going to happen is through that kind of cooperation so I hope that uh you know the meeting with Xi Jinping is an example of that maybe a a sort of shift in the the ways that uh, America has been confronting China, but I don't know I'm not so sure because the Biden administration doesn't have a great track on it, and if they do blow this election, which seems like a distinct possibility um you're probably going to end up with a way even more hawkish uh, uh, Republican administration on it, um, which is going to make that kind of cooperation more or less impossible. Well, let's look back on 2023.
1: Some of our favorites, some of our highlights. Now, do you have any personal yeah. highlights? Some fun stuff. 2023?
0: Yeah. Personal highlights from 2023. Well, it was uh, it was a tumultuous year, uh, certainly politically in the news uh department uh not for me personally though everything was kind of smooth sailing over here but um no it was uh you know it was a it was a good year i i um, i've enjoy I've, i'm proud of the work that i've been doing this year um i'm proud of uh you know the, uh, my son's doing doing well i mean with everything happening especially in, in gaza right now i've been more cognizant of ever about how lucky that I am, that he gets to grow up in this environment where he's safe and healthy and he's, he's not um, being threatened or deprived or, or living in this kind of a nightmare situation that so many kids around the world are forced to uh, to live in. So that's something that I'm really thankful for. Um, last year, I did make a sort of New Year's resolution to read more of the books on my bookshelf behind me so I could just not have the books to look smart, but I could actually be smart from reading the books. And didn't quite make as much of a dent in that as as I would have liked, um, but made a little bit of a dent. So uh, personally, yeah, personally, it was was good. It was good. How about you? Yeah. um, I'd say 2023 was a
1: pretty good year. Got engaged. I think that's the big, the big highlight. Uh, Moved. After like two and a half years of doing distance, we finally live in the same city. We live together, which is great. Um, Other highlight? I think going to Japan, seeing Japan for the first time, it's like a place I always thought was a bucket list. Maybe maybe even a fantasy destination was able to swing that uh, through some unique circumstances. Going out there with friends was, was pretty cool. Slept, was my- was
0: cool. slept through an earthquake. Slept through an earthquake.
1: Slept through an earthquake, survived a deadly fire. Um, different. Instances. I guess now that I've moved, I could mention that. Yeah, it's I think late spring, early summer. My old apartment complex in D.C. caught on fire, and someone died, dozens were hurt, and like hundreds of people had to be displaced. And I slept right through it; just didn't even realize. And then woke up to like a flurry of texts. And then just as we were starting to record, or just about to record, someone from my uh, old neighborhood texted me asking if I lived that same complex to say. Hey, there was another fire. Are you still there? <laughs> so <laughs> glad I'm glad I'm out of there. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'd say win, good win
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's take a look at um, some of our some of our favorites, some of our top picks uh, of the year. Yeah, that's always fun. Absolutely. So let's start with films. Films. Of films of the year. And oh, for me, let's I go. got to say, amazingly. I don't even know how this is possible, but for the second year in a row, thanks everyone for listening. The Way of Water. (laughs) Wow, just I don't even know how that works, but it was still. Has um, it already been? Wait, did it come out in 2022? Yeah, yeah. Um, Wow. No, I'm just joking about that, but I did rewatch it on uh, on Boxing Day actually, and it's uh, it's becoming now a holiday (laughs) favorite. It's a story of of family. It's a story of resurrection, of redemption. I think it's a great holiday holiday feature for the whole family. Um, but I will go first though, talking about my favorite films of the year. And now like, listen, like, I don't, I don't think I saw enough new films. I'm not, this is not a super informed take. There's a lot of films that I did not see this year. Um, but, uh, I would say that my favorite film of the year was, uh, Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, which I finally Mm -hmm. got a chance to see just a few weeks ago. Uh, it was just really fantastic, really incredible performances, really powerful, uh, narrative, Um, I think there was, there was some criticism of it, particularly from some, uh, indigenous groups. My understanding is that the Osage, like we're, we're implicated in the, in the whole process of making this movie. But I think also it's a really grim depiction of like indigenous suffering and it's, it's hard to watch at some point. And I think being from one of those communities, I could see how that would maybe be really upsetting to see that kind of being turned into, into content to be consumed by people or entertainment. Um, I I would totally understand that criticism, even if it's in service to a story, which is ultimately I think about the the ruthlessness and the evils of the colonization of Indigenous people and the way that these communities have been uh, decimated over the years and and uh, exploited. So it was. I thought it was really fantastic. I don't know if you saw it, it's uh, uh, but I really did uh, like it a lot. Killers of the Flower Moon. That's my pick for favorite film of the year. How about okay. you? You got to pick. I've got,
1: I've got two. Uh, one is just, I think, one of the best movies I've seen in a long time, but it wasn't my favorite, and that's Oppenheimer. Mm. I think the way he made that movie, which was what three hours, and the pacing with which he constructed it, and I thought it was really engaging because of that for a, a narrative drama with very little action i mean the whole movie is about the yeah people talking. i guess for like the first hour 45 it's about the construction of the bomb but you, you know the explosion itself that scene is a minute yeah and the tension he builds with a great score and then oppenheimer's life after that test the attacks that he faced from Congress during the Red Scare. I just thought it was really fascinating. I really enjoyed that movie. But my favorite movie of the year was Talk to Me.
0: Have you watched that movie yet? No, I did not see that. It was a unique
1: premise for a horror movie that I really enjoyed. And if people are unfamiliar, the the plot is kids in Australia f- find this plaster hand put it on the table, you light a candle, you hold on to it and you say, talk to me. And your your body, you just become like possessed and you can see and communicate with the dead. But the longer you do it and the more you do it, the more they'll want to stay with you. And I, I really thought that had a fresh feel in a genre that is so saturated with just tired cliches and redundancy. This just it was a new take on horror
0: that I really, really enjoyed. So
1: my top film of the year was talk to me.
0: Cool. I did not see that. It sounds intriguing. I'm always interested in seeing some new uh, quality, uh, horror. So I'll, I will definitely check that out. Uh, I definitely, I would echo your, your stance on Oppenheimer as well, which was probably in top contention for me as well. I really, really liked it. Uh, a little bit regretted, didn't, not seeing that like in the theater, like in, uh, in IMAX, considering the way that Christopher Nolan really likes to use, uh, IMAX but I still did really enjoy it I thought it was probably Christopher Nolan's best film um, it's not even though I I like some of the the weird sci-fi bullshit that he often sprinkles into his films like there's really none of that uh, or no real efforts to tell that kind of a story it's interesting because I, I think like I don't know if this is like a media criticism problem but like it seemed like a lot of the people that I saw complaining about this film were kind of like taking this stance that it represented this total endorsement of, of everything that, that Oppenheimer did. And like the fact that he was kind of the protagonist of the film meant that like his actions were, were supposed to, we were supposed to approve of them and think that they were great. Um, I don't think that that is true. <laughs> uh, I thought that was a kind of a weird, uh, uh, stance to take about this movie. Uh, I thought he was a really compelling protagonist precisely because he was very flawed. Um, you see this you know you see this portrait of this person who has like good values you know he's got these like socialist leanings he's trying to unionize his workplace he has all these kind of like commie friends that he's hanging out with and you know he gets involved in this project with kind of the understanding that he's going to contribute to destroying the the third reich which seems like this existential threat and destroying fascism But then like through that process, you see his kind of like ego takes over and just wanting to create this thing and wanting to succeed and wanting to build this like this force of destruction, wanting to become this historically significant figure, starts kind of like overcoming whatever noble sort of intentions he might have had. And then by the time they deliver the bomb, there is no Third Reich anymore. Um, And there's all that kind of like facade has kind of been stripped away. And really, he's just delivered the ability of the United States to kind of like institute their own reign of terror over the rest of the world and kick off the the cold war and kick off the fourth reich if you want to call it that you know um mm-hmm. and i thought that was really fascinating and also the way that like even someone that goes against his own professed ideals to create this superweapon still gets accused of being like a closet communist in in this <laughs> red scare uh environment and still gets has his loyalty questioned despite the fact that he delivered this this basically uh Miracle of science, which is this destructive, awful weapon that he created, which you know killed hundreds of thousands of people uh, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and he still gets his loyalty is still gets questioned, and he still gets accused of being a traitor. Um, so I thought it was just a really interesting kind of study of this character and the and the way that like uh, you know the U.S. government uh, treated this person who, who who delivered this to them. Uh, really fantastic performances. Uh, it looked really great. Uh, I also really enjoyed the score as well. Really, really fantastic. It was probably just a hair under under uh, Scorsese, but I thought it was really great, though.
1: Really good movie. Uh, for books, I've got two, again. Maybe this will be a theme. Uh, I've, so one was more about the impact it had on me personally, and the other one I just thought was the most fascinating. So the impact it had on me personally, The Creative Act by Rick Rubin. It isn't about, I can't remember if I told you about it, but it is not about his time in the studio or anything like that. In fact, I don't remember him naming a single name, despite being one of the most successful and influential music producers Producers ever. It's his collective like meditations and thoughts and insights on different things, like how you can live your life in a contemplative, uh, peaceful, or thoughtful, meditative way. But then also how you approach art and creativity how you can better yourself uh, uh, on those fronts. It's really short. A lot of people use it as a coffee table book. The chapters are one to two, sometimes three pages. You can just do it like a daily thing. I'll pick it up, read it a chapter, think about it throughout your day. I listened to it all in one day, and I have gone back to it frequently. Really, really good. I like that one a lot. But my favorite book of the year was Ringmaster, uh, Abraham Josephine Reisman. She came on the show to talk about Vince McMahon. Uh, Her book, Ringmaster, Vince McMahon, The Unmaking of America, her thoughts about kayfabe and neo-kayfabe, just a really, really great, fun book. You don't even have to be a wrestling fan to like it. I barely uh, am a wrestling observer. I know a couple people and a couple storylines and that's it. I don't watch, but I really, really liked that book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was really fantastic to talk to uh, to Josie about it, and on the movie front as well. The, the one movie that I did not get to, a chance to see yet, and probably won't before the end of it, was was uh, Iron Claw, which yeah, I want to see Apparently, is really great as well. I mean, one of the most tragic stories in wrestling, the story of the Von Erich family, and I, I, it seems like it's provoking the the appropriate re- re- reactions from people. Um, on Rick Rubin, that's thing. I didn't read that book, but I did see a clip from him uh, doing an interview that's been that's gone viral. I think a couple of times this year where he talks about, you know, his success as a producer. And he talks about how he's like, I have no musical ability whatsoever. I don't know how to play an instrument. I don't know how any of this stuff works. Uh, you know, and I think that's really amazing that when he when he's kind of very upfront about that, but he just says like, I know what I like and I know what I like to hear and what, I, what sounds good to me and what I think will work. And I help people become the best versions of themselves by applying that kind of like analysis to what, what they're doing. And I thought that was really fascinating and really interesting. He's kind of a really interesting, weird guy. But again, it's like you, you, you can talk about his lack of musical ability or technical ability, but you just look at his track record of stuff that he's been involved with over the years. And it's just absolutely astounding. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. That book, it doesn't go into specifics, but like about music theory, obviously, but and you can apply it to anything. And after listening to it, I just had this wave of creative energy that I applied to my work and ended up having just a couple really, really solid months at work where I brought new and creative ideas to work that ended up being really fruitful. It was just an impact that a book had on me that I can't remember of like the dozens and dozens that I've read or listened to. Nothing has come close to creating that impact. So that's, that's gotta be mentioned for me.
0: Yeah. And Hey, listen, like from a personal perspective, uh, I don't have a degree in political science or I don't have a degree in journalism, but. Uh, I do actually feel pretty good about the work that I've been able to do in this kind of world and having a kind of analysis of how our, our political system works or how imperialism works and these things. So uh, I, I kind of connect with that a little bit. You know, it's not really about this kind of whatever knowledge that you have that you gain in school, but it's more about, you know, the regardless of that, you're still able to bring something uh, special to whatever your, whatever topic that you're working on. Um, right. I did not, I did not, I don't think I read a book th- from this year, uh, this year, uh, so I don't know if I could say a favorite book of the year. I will say two of my favorite books that I did read, uh, I read, uh, uh, Washington Bullets by Vijay Prashad, um, who is just a historian and a, and a, you know, a political analyst that I've, that I've grown to really like and respect a lot. I've had the uh, fortune to, uh, to talk to him a couple times, uh, on my, my Twitch show. And he's a really, I think he's a really cool and interesting person. Uh, and that's just a really kind of devastating, documentation of some of the, the real evils of American foreign policy um, over the last several decades, which I think is really important for people to understand that history and the way that America engages within the world. There's a lot of discourse right now about America. Is it a, is it a fascist dictatorship? Uh, someone made a, a statement like that. And of course it, it led to all this discourse to oh, no, and technically you know, the community notes get involved. You know, it's not, of course it's not a fascist dictatorship And Biden's <laughs> not a fascist dictator, but <laughs> you look at the way America is engaged with through the world and it's like, it's, it becomes a little bit less black and white, you know, um, mm-hmm. especially when you consider the ways that the America operates um as basically the arm of a, a bunch of conglomerates and uh, powerful corporate conglomerates in the weapons manufacturing industry, the energy industry, or whatever else, um, yeah, and has been uh, engaging with the world in this really violent and undemocratic way around the world. You know, I think we f- lose sight of that sometimes when we talk about Canada or the United States. Is it fascist? Is it not fascist? Well, my my life has been great, but if you disconnect your own personal <laughs> experience from that and you realize that the impact that it's had on people around the world, it's a little bit less uh clear cut. Um and another mm. book and on this front actually another book that I read that it was was really eye-opening and I would recommend everyone read The Devil's Chessboard um by mm. David yeah. Talbot, which is about the origins of the CIA uh and specifically focus on uh Alan Dulles. And man, is it ever a uh, uh <laughs> mind fuck to to read that, and I think you know you thought you think about like the CIA and the way the CIA engaged throughout the world, like that's covered in in books like like Washington Bullets. But um, and you know, I've talked about you know the things like Operation Paperclip in the post war period, you know, bringing these Nazis into the, the NASA uh, rocketry program and this kind of stuff. But you realize reading this book how much deeper that goes. Um, And this whole like Operation Sunrise that Alan Dulles took took part in, which was basically treason. Like he's basically a Nazi sympathizer who committed treason and went went against what the actual president of the United States at that time wanted to do and kind of uh, engaged with his own separate peace deal with these high ranking Nazi officials and SS people bringing them into the spy apparatus. Um, So that kind of gives you a, a, a... a little bit of a base level to understand like the origins of this intelligence apparatus and the security state. And then you can read books like Washington Bullets or, you know, other books like uh, the Jakarta Method is another good example of how they use this apparatus around the world to secure this American hegemony over the last 70, 80 years. And it's pretty fucking gruesome, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a really good history for people to to understand. So when we talk about America, I think if you if you don't really have a firm grasp on that history, you don't really get what America has really been about, uh, over the last, uh, over its history. And that, those are two books that really helped me. I can kind of like get that, uh, that really get a grasp on that history. So you can really understand that. Nice. Nice. Um,
1: both are on my list of books I need to listen to. I've been just, I've been meaning to get to Devil's Chessboard for a couple of years now, and I just haven't, there's just been so many others I've it's, it's been crazy too. Because it really to. you read really it and to. it's like
0: it's almost like a like a fictional like a Tom Clancy sort of kind of a thing, but it's all based in, in you know real things that happened, and it it really does exactly. like even if you even if you have a really negative idea of what America is, I think it even goes even further and says like oh wow this is really even goes a lot deeper than even I imagined, so we'd definitely yeah. recommend that. Uh,
1: all right, and uh, I think maybe a category where we both might have a lot of opinions, and definitely different uh, results or picks. What's your top album or parentheses
0: S albums of the year, Rob? (laughs) I don't think... Listen, I'm 40 years old. Okay, so I don't Uh think that you can't say
1: Steely Dan. Yeah, so (laughs) that was exactly what I was going to say. No,
0: Um, I was going to say the album is the album of the year is uh, Gaucho by Steely Dan. Um, (laughs) I I honestly don't think that I listened to um, a single new release this year. That's just how I'm. Wow, that's just how I am now. I'm just I I listen to stuff from the the mostly the, the 70s and 80s. And that's just, I've accepted that that's just what I'm about now. So I don't want to, I don't want to give some kind of big take or stance about some kind of new music. Do we have a friend of the show that uh, released anything? Uh, I'd say stick to your friends guns of the show that, this year. Not
1: this year. No, no, that was last year. So nothing. You got nothing. You've okay. listened to nothing this I, year.
0: I really don't think I listened to one. Okay. Hold on. Wait. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay. He's my, searching. my,
0: my song of the year, my song of the year, it's not an album. I didn't listen to the whole album. My song of the year. I think this is the only modern current song that I listened to at all this year was Cupid by Fifty Fifty, the K-pop I, group. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was, there was a period right. in, the, in like the early summer that I got heavily obsessed with that song and listened to it like, it was like a whole it was like a weekend like it wasn't a long period it was like a weekend where i got so obsessed with it and listened to it like probably 100 times and then i don't think i've listened to it since but that that is my song of the year. Okay. The Cupid by a Korean uh, pop group 5050. All right, the the go like that. that's my final answer.
1: All right. Well, yeah, i guess we do have pretty similar similar takes, uh, similar picks because mine were Dying Wishes, Symptoms of Survival, obviously dying wish and k-pop go hand in hand Yep, (laughs) and then ends the sin of human frailty i think both of those albums are just really really great okay i'll leave it there i I don't want to get super into the details that i don't think many listeners are going to care about with either of these albums but i think dying wish is an exciting hardcore metalcore band that is just skyrocketing so quickly. And I just love what they're doing. And I love this album. I really like the song Lost in the Fall. Emma's vocals really shine and they are like a Kill Switch Engage for the 21st century. Or I guess for the 2020s. Kill Switch Engage was also a 21st century band, but for the 2020s. It's it's fun, it's exciting. They're young. Their politics are great. They're outspoken. Uh really appreciate that. And and I think it's just one of the best metal bands right now. It's fucking awesome.
0: Cool. Is there anything else? Any other categories? I don't know if I watched a ton of TV series. I did. Quite, I got quite into For All Mankind um, over the last couple of uh, weeks. And the new season of that's out right now. It seems it's been pretty good so far. The only TV series I
1: watched this year from this year, I think, was just The Bear Season 2. That was good, too. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and that that was mine i guess cuz it's the only one i watched okay i've seen a couple episodes of the curse but i haven't finished it so i don't know if i could put it on the same level as the bear
0: okay all That's right pretty good yeah <laughs> yeah more tv to watch in, in 2024 absolutely more debate. yeah um on that on that note uh, where it's about time for us to wrap up i'm going to go and turn on the last uh, couple minutes of this raptors uh Uh, Pistons game to see if the Raptors are going to be the team that loses to the Pistons Mm -hmm. and and breaks the streak of, I think, 24 straight losses. Right now they're down six with about 650 in the fourth left to go. It's been a very depressing season for the Raptors, although they just made a big trade today, traded OG Ananobi for Emmanuel Quickly and RJ Barrett um, from the Knicks, which I think kind of excited about. So maybe, maybe they're going to turn things around in the, in the new year. I don't know. I'm not going to get my hopes up, but maybe. We'll see.
1: Can't really focus too much on NBA until NFL is over. And yeah. that's going to be another month and a half or so. so. Yeah.
0: Until then. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to watching the Super Bowl this year now that I've actually watched some games uh, yeah. this year. I now feel you're a little, little bit more hit. connected to it. I still don't I – ha- I haven't formed a real emotional bond with anyone. I really gave the Bulls a chance – sorry, the Bills a chance. <laughs> Not the Bulls. Yeah. I've really given yeah, yeah. the Bills a chance. And I still, you know, if uh, I'll probably root for them, I like them, but I still don't feel the, the emotional connection yet. So, Rob, now is the time.
1: There is no better time than right now to jump on the Cleveland bandwagon. Oh. There's no better time. The Browns just, just clinched the top seed in the wild card. A... Awesome story this year, overcoming all this adversity, all these injuries. They had their just ridiculous all-star running back, Nick Chubb, out game two. Everyone thought the season was over. Shaky situation at quarterback for several games before Joe Flacco, 39-year-old Joe Flacco, maybe he's 40, comes back basically out of retirement. He was just throwing the ball around the yard with his brother and his dad. Comes back and starts putting up all-star numbers. It's just unbelievable. Pro Bowl numbers. Whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Who fucking well, cares? None of those idea. games matter anyway. Yeah. 300 yards a game, multiple touchdowns. He's thrown 12 touchdowns in a couple games. He is playing lights out football for the Cleveland Browns. Yeah. <laughs> Join us. Join us, Rob. That's right. There this is, is no, way, there's no way this ends
0: in heartbreak. There's no way this ends poorly, exactly. I'm gonna get involved in a Cleveland sports franchise. That's just what I need to turn turn everything around this year uh-huh good yeah <laughs> um but, okay that's I'll give it some consideration. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see um before we go, folks, we gotta say thank you for uh sticking with us for another year of uh the insurgents podcast, like Jordan said we're coming up on year four here. It's pretty fucking amazing, honestly. And uh, we couldn't do this show without people listening to it and uh, supporting it. It's something that means a lot to us. It allows us to continue doing this. We really appreciate each and every one of you that uh, tune into this program. Um, you know, who, who would have thought that this, that this podcast with an American and a, and a weird Canadian guy talking about American politics and whatever else we talk about would, would find this kind of uh, longevity, but we, we did it. It's something I'm really proud of. i very happy to, to continue doing this show. And really, really appreciate uh, everyone in the Insurgents family. That's right. We're a family, all of us, and you listening to this right now, especially you. You're included in that. So thank you. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in this year. It was a really great year.
1: Yeah. Can't thank you enough. We love doing this show. We have a blast. We have some things that we would love to do this year to provide even better coverage of the election. We're really, really excited to do that, to tell you about it. Uh, Much more to come in 2024, but we really can't thank you enough for listening, especially those of you who have been listening since 2020. As we've upgraded our equipment, as we've upgraded our capabilities, uh, you've been with us and supported us in doing that and we hope that we can help you escape from the day uh, a couple times a week. Uh, We hope we can bring on more and even more interesting guests in 2024 and we look forward to another year of really great coverage.
0: Yes. As we've upgraded our equipment, as I've, uh, as I've completely lost all faith in Western liberal democracy as being a, a vehicle for any kind of good things to happen. You know, it's been a whole journey and that people have been along, along with, uh, so we really appreciate it a lot. Thank you so much to everyone for tuning in and for supporting the show. Thank you, Jordan, for doing the show with me. And uh, I have a blast doing it. And, uh, that's, uh, that's it. Thanks. Thanks everyone. My, that was a, that was my opportunity for a little heartfelt moment, and I kind of kind of fumbled. But you know, okay. Yeah, that's eh, it's okay. all good. Next year, I'll, I'll get it next year.
1: Yeah, you have a year to prepare, starting now. That's
0: right. Yeah. So thank you, uh, thank you everyone. Thanks for listening. We will be back in twenty twenty four with uh, even more wonderful insurgents content. Until then, goodbye.